Hello, everybody. Welcome to the April 2018 Mark Leverage podcast. Wonderful to have you listening. I'm going to start this month by chatting for a few minutes about Richard Kaufman. Now, I probably only ever spoken face to face with Richard for a few seconds once, I guess, in all the years the two of us have been involved in magic. And uh, despite that fact, I've been aware of him all of my adult life because he's had a direct influence on a lot of the uh, magic that I have read. Some of the big books that he illustrated, things like Coin Magic and uh, the Dingle Book and various other big books that he published with uh, in conjunction with Greenberg, were really important works. And one of the reasons that, and one of the things that made these books so superb were his illustrations. His illustrations were, for me anyway, very groundbreaking. I felt the way he managed to convey not only clarity of what you needed to see, almost as good if not better than a photograph, but he also managed to portray, through the clever use of lines, motion, so you could see in what direction a hand was supposed to be moving as it executed a, a slight or something like that. And as far as I'm aware, nobody had ever really done it in this way before. And, and Richard was really, really good at um, clarifying text with these fantastic illustrations. So he illustrated the, the books, of course, and, and, and published them. He also worked for a while illustrating for Harry Lorraine's Apocalypse magazine, I loved Apocalypse magazine. I ended up buying the the complete bound set because I liked it so much and I still look back through those regularly and and for a while he was illustrating there. But my all-time favorite magazine was his own, was Richard's Almanac, which uh, I thought had some of the best close-up magic certainly at the time that it was released, but even, but looking back on it now and again I have the bound version of this, looking back on it, some of the best close-up magic magic published in magazines full stop it, it really was some great stuff uh, and again you know it was a very interesting magazine uh, niche but then I, it was my niche close-up magic and of course these days he's the head mover and shaker at genie magazine so he's still in publishing and still in magazines so uh, given all this um, I was a bit surprised to learn the other day and I, I don't look at social media a great deal um, that uh, he'd gone onto social media, um, something like Facebook, I think it was, and, and had a sort of mini hissy fit over Magic Scene's new logo. Now, Mag Magic Scene's design editor is Phil Shaw. And every couple of years, Phil will sit down and he'll do a redesign of the look of the magazine. We like to keep it fresh. We like to, to, to make it seem as modern as we can. And, and one of the ways to do this so that our loyal readers get something new to see all the time is to not only change the content of course but also to change the way the magazine looks and not only the inside of the magazine but occasionally Phil will have a go at redesigning the logo and I think in the 13 years or so that we've been publishing I think he's done about four different ones the current one is the one that Richard doesn't like because he feels because we've used the word magic large and we've got seen inside the word magic he thinks we are trying to con buyers into thinking that we are magic magazine Stan Allen's now defunct sadly magic magazine which is nonsense but this is how Richard has seen it and of course the trouble with with uh, social media is that no sooner have you had a thought then you can publish it to the entire world 
Um, in the old days, he would have had to have waited for his bull column, let's say, in Richard's Almanac. So it would have been a month, perhaps, where he'd had to consider what he was going to say um, and maybe think about it a bit more. But of course, the trouble with social media is, bleh, out it all goes instantly. And, uh, and quite frankly, it's all a bit of a nonsense. No, we did not try to copy Stalin's magic magazine sort of header. Yes, of course, it will look similar because it has the word magic in it. But uh, it certainly wasn't our intention to do that, even if he thinks we did. And, uh, and it's just a shame that something like that, can, where somebody, one person involved in magazines has a pop at another. I think, well, that's a shame. There's room for all of us. And since Genie has been around a lot longer than Magic Scene, I don't really know why he felt it necessary to have a go. I was at a business network lunch last month and um, we were sitting around on my particular table. We were sitting around and we we're having a meal and everybody tells everybody else what they do in their business. And it's, it's a really interesting format to, to exchange information about what you do and to find out what other people do. And sitting next to me was a lady who um, had her own PR agency. And she was telling me that the reason that she had, and she hadn't been to this particular network before, and the reason that she was there was because she'd been invited along as a guest of a lady called Glenn King, who also has a PR agency of her own. And I went and saw Glenn and I said to her, that's, uh, I just realised that you've, inv you've invited one of your main competitors along to this lunch. That's a, quite a brave move, isn't it? She said, well, not really, she said, because... Um, although, yes, in some ways we are competitors, we're also, we have complementary services. And when we are perhaps at any one time, we never take on, uh, because of a clash of interest, a customer who has exactly the same business area. We sometimes will get an inquiry coming in for an area of business that we're currently already promoting for somebody else. So I'm, I like to have somebody that I can trust and that I know the business well that I can pass the business on to. And that's why the two of us have, are sort of getting a bit more together and I, why I invited her today in order to you know, foster that relationship. And it seemed obvious to me then. I thought, oh, yes, of course. That's actually what we as magicians often do, or at least it's something that I've done for years. And I'm sure lots of other people do it as well. We all know the experience where certain dates in the year, for whatever reason, and it doesn't have to be a major holiday or some other sort of obvious reason, like it's Christmas. Um, for some reason, a date, you keep getting inquiries. You take, you get a booking for the for the particular date, and then you get three or four more inquiries for the same date. And we all know how frustrating that is when you can't do it. And sometimes people will say, oh, you can't do it. Oh, that's a shame. Um, is there anyone you can recommend? And at this point, you make a decision, don't you, about whether you are going to recommend somebody. Well, what I've always done is I have um, one or two people who I trust, one in particular, who, who I trust completely, who I know is similar to me in the way that he works, similar to me in what he offers and the price that he charges, and who I know is trustworthy. He will turn up, he will do a good job and all the rest of it. So I'm very happy to pass all of my slack sort of dates if you like to him where I can't do it here's a booking and I pass give his name and contact details to the booker and they go and contact him and he does the same to me he passes stuff back to me and we've been doing this for years and years and years and it, it, it works well you know, you'll go through a period where 
I might pass in three or four shows in a row and nothing comes back the other way and then suddenly it'll turn around and I'll be getting stuff back from him in, in, in sort of bulk. It's, it's just purely at random. But it is a nice way and it's a nice thing to be able to do where you trust the person that you're sending the, the booking to because um, having somebody that you can recommend to somebody who, a booker, who you are unable to help otherwise, it makes you look helpful. And if this guy goes and does a good job, well, that's great. That reflects well on you. Obviously, you don't want them to go and do a bad job. You may say, oh, yeah, but if I recommend somebody good, then they'll get rebooked next time. Yeah, they might. Or the person who booked them this time, in five years' time, they may still come back to you because you were kind enough to mention the other person last time and they were very happy with him, but now they'd like you this time. You know, there's there's no reason to say that, that they won't have you next time if there is going to be a next time. And often, of course, there isn't in any case. The, a lot of our bookings tend to be one-offs, don't they? So um, I shouldn't have really been surprised, should I, that the PR agencies were getting together. It's the same as we magicians do. And, and I think having someone you can refer to or a couple of people you can refer to is a very useful service that we can offer people who inquire to us when we can't help them. OK, and now for a very small mini rant. Why is it that some magicians seem to delight in creating for themselves an almost impossible to remember or write email address. Now, I know that everybody has to have an, uh, a unique email address, clearly. Otherwise, you get emails from everybody, wouldn't you, with the same name? So it's obvious that you've got to have a difference from one person to another. But given that an email address can sometimes certainly be a really core way that people communicate with other people, I can't understand why some magicians seem to go out of their way to make the most unmemorable email address that they can possibly think of. A whole series of numbers or letters, and don't get me started on underscores and hyphens, um, all these things thrown in, in an almost random way it seems, and then when they come to try and tell somebody what their email address is, it's fine if someone's just replying to an email that they've sent, but if they have to fill out a form or they have to um, tell somebody over the phone what their email address is, it causes awful problems. I mean, like, let's face it, you've only got to get one digit or letter wrong and the whole email address just gets pinged back anyway. So there's not a lot of room for error here. And, and so I cannot understand why anybody would want to make it more difficult for people to remember their email address than they need to. And I said, don't get me started on hyphens and underscores, because hyphens and underscores, when people type hyphens or underscores, it's fine because it's clear you either get it right or you get it wrong. You hit the right key and you'll get it right. Where that doesn't work is when people are handwriting their email addresses because they're filling out a form and they know what their email address is. They tend to write it quite slapdash. They write it fast and they throw this line in. And when you look at it afterwards, you think, right, is that an underscore or is that a hyphen? In fact, is that just a scratch of the pen? Uh, was that not meant to be there in the first place? Because it's not a very big line. Is that meant to be a dot that has got a bit squidged? 
you know and then you start then it what it means is you 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 do what you think it is and if it gets pinged back then you have to try again with another version if that gets pinged back you try another one but it shouldn't be this difficult should it and i think particularly when for instance bookers are trying to connect with you in order to make a booking or an inquiry they don't want to have to work out perhaps what you said your email address was they want to find it easily um so yeah just mini rant cannot understand why anybody would want to make their email address more difficult than they have to there's been a lot of talk in the media uh, for the last few weeks about gdpr the general data protection regulation which is a piece of legislation that is coming into effect on the 25th of may this year and essentially it what it's about is um a piece of legislation that seeks to protect eu citizens from the big corporations and the way that these big companies uh, use and protect data about us that they harvest when they do business with us and it's well intentioned it's a bit like the data protection act only with bells on it's a lot more thorough and in, in many ways uh, for most of us even if we have our own businesses then unless you have a relatively big business you think well it doesn't apply to me well apparently it does it applies to absolutely everybody although quite frankly whether they're going to come after one-man bands or, or small magic businesses who aren't quite doing things right i think it's probably unlikely but nevertheless you are supposed to comply and it's a very complex piece of legislation and i can't even pretend to have got my head around it but um in essence and i think i was trying to identify where it might affect me personally uh, my businesses and, and and me as a performer and i realized that one of the areas that it that it could affect is the fact that whereas up to now you could if you had the details of a customer it might be a booker or a, in the case of a magic business a customer then you would take their information that they'd supplied you to place an order and you might send them an occasional email or a newsletter or something like that and they if they didn't want it they could opt out and you went to the bottom of the newsletter and you could unsubscribe but you weren't actually required to subscribe you could but you didn't have to and the business could still send it to you one of the major changes that as far as i understand it that gdpr is going to bring in is that we won't be able to do that anymore in other words in order to send somebody unsolicited emails or communications um over the web you are going to have to get them to say yes i want it so in other words they're going to have to opt in otherwise you can't send it to them which just you know sort of moves the goalposts a bit doesn't it for us so if you do shows and you obviously you harvest the the information of the the booker then if you wanted to remind them in 9 months time that the child's birthday party is coming up and would they like to book you again i guess technically speaking unless they have given you inf- um, the uh, permission to keep and then use their information to remind them that the you are available to come and do a party again then strictly speaking you shouldn't contact them over the web by email or facebook or whatever it is um i don't know how far reaching this is um as i say it's quite a, obviously it's it is quite a complicated piece of legislation and i'm sure you know big companies it's a real headache it's going to cost them a huge amount 
in order to comply with all the various ways that they're supposed to handle electronic data and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it might turn out to be something that's quite good for the consumer because it might protect us a little bit, you know, those of us that live in the EU, um, from people constantly bombarding us with, with information that we haven't asked for and then us having to unsubscribe uh, or get it trashed the whole time every time it comes in. But um, it'll remain to be seen whether that actually happens. I did wonder, actually, whether because of Brexit, whether we won't, in fact, it won't apply to us because we're not going to be in the EU for much longer. But apparently it does because we won't be out of the EU for at least another couple of years. So therefore, even in the UK, it still applies to us um, because we are still in the EU. So if you do um, sort of contact customers uh, and you do do so without their express permission, you may want to sort of have a little rethink about whether it might be just wise just to cover yourself by getting permission from them. Say, would it be all right if I sent you a reminder in uh, you know eight or nine months time? Would that be OK? Um, and then get them to either sign something or in exchange of email, say, yes, that's fine. And then you sort of covered yourself. I was doing some strolling magic recently for a 50th wedding anniversary party. It's for a gentleman who um, I'd actually entertained at his 70th birthday party about five years ago. And now it was his um, 50th wedding anniversary and he booked me to come back again and entertain him and his family and friends. And it was a very nice do. It was only about 30 odd people. So one sort of like a long table in which him and his wife and closest family were sitting and then three other tables of about 10 to 12 people on each table. So it was a lovely gig, uh, very informal, very relaxed. And I was entertaining towards the end of the meal. And um, I did about an hour for them. And when I got to the, the end of my stint, I was um, just about to go. And there was a gentleman sitting on the top table. So one of the family um, of this particular gentleman whose anniversary it was. And um, he started to talk to me. And he 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 was obviously very interested. Um, he said, "Oh, he said I, I love magic." He said, and "I've really enjoyed watching you because he was on the top table because he could watch me at the top table, but then he had a prime sight of me at the other three tables as well." And he said, "And I, I'm really interested watching the way you work here." He said, "And I, I sort of made a few observations, and I wonder whether you could say whether this is right or not." He said, "I, I noticed that um, that each of the tables." Um, is made up of different characters, different people, and, and that they, as a group, they seem to react differently to you and to the magic. He said, um, and I noticed that you, you actually behave slightly differently depending on the, the nature of the group. So I'm assuming, would it be right in saying that, that you kind of, when you start to work, you, you sum up the group in some way and and that you you then work accordingly and the way you perform and what you say and how you are and what your personality is like is is determined partly by what those people are like? I thought, well, that's an interesting question. Um, he said, also, um, I, I get the impression that you, and I don't, I mean this in a nice way, he says, that you, you sort of, um, control the people you, you, you control them and mould them into the group that you need in order to appreciate the magic that you do um, and that you you need to kind of control them to make them into that group for, for the whole sort of presentation at that table to work wow uh, uh, anyway he went on on this sort of vein talking about that 
and nothing to so much to do with the magic he'd obviously really enjoyed the magic he said oh he thought it was marvelous and all the rest of it which was lovely but it was more i was more interested in his observations about things which i hadn't really sort of analyzed you don't analyze it while you're doing it but as he was talking about it and saying is that right i realized that he is right that is kind of what i do and i guess as when you are an experienced performer and we, we've always said i think that um it's all too easy to get too fixated by the tricks and that as you get more experienced you your attention turns away from the tricks and more to the presentation the management of the group the the things that you say dealing with what's going on in the room so that it doesn't interfere with your performance judging how long to stay with the group all, all the various things that you you kind of almost start to do instinctively after a while but that's taking up say 90% of your energy and brain space and and the tricks are only 10% that's not to say the tricks are not important it's just that you've got the tricks down you've got them nailed you know what you're doing technically and everything else. So the rest of the time, the other 90% of your attention is going to managing each of the spectator groups. And I thought, well, actually, yes, he, he's right. That is what's happening. That is what I'm doing. I'm not thinking about it, but I'm instinctively doing it. And it was very interesting because I've never really had a layperson talk to me about that in, in that way ever before wasn't aware that anybody would even notice but I suppose because he was he was sitting on the end of this table and he wasn't with anybody specifically at that point and he was just sitting on his own watching he was clearly I don't know thinking about it and and trying to analyze what the whole situation was with this this magician and the way he was working and so on so it's very interesting isn't it that um, it just goes to show you that that we may a lot of us are doing things almost without realising it, that may be enhancing our performances and that we're doing things that are making the experience for the people that we're entertaining so much better. Um, and we're, if we're doing it well, the whole performance goes better as a result. And yet we're probably not entirely aware that we're doing anything in particular. But it is true. I know different spectator groups. I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, that you approach a table and it can be very different dynamic to a table that's right next to it and the people around that table can behave differently and appear have to have a different relationship that they want a different relationship with you some are very warm and welcoming others are almost hands-off won't look at you don't really want to see magic or at least they think they don't and so on and you have to have some wriggle room here you have to know what you're doing sufficiently to warm up the ones that apparently don't want to see any magic and and try and give them the best time that they are capable of having and then at the same time perhaps even slightly reining in the overly enthusiastic people at the next table who want you to stay for half an hour when you've only got 10 minutes the maximum that you can let them have so um all these techniques and so for for new magicians coming in no wonder um, doing strolling magic or table hopping magic can sometimes seem overwhelmingly difficult it's not, because not only are all these other things perhaps crowding in on them and giving them questions that they don't have answers to, but they're probably, if they're not totally au fait with the magic, they're still working the magic in and getting used to performing under what are often trying conditions, that these people are also having to concentrate too much on what they're technically doing. So it can be quite, quite difficult and difficult to bring all those things together uh, and can be quite stressful. 
as you get more experience and the more you do it, the easier it does become and you just do things automatically, which clearly is what this guy seemed to have noticed. I've always felt that when a booker is looking for a magician, they have got obviously an event, an event in mind that they're hoping you, that you will entertain at. And for them, this event could be extremely important. I mean, it's very unlikely that it's not important. It'll be a wedding, a special birthday. It's a party that is significant to them for whatever reason. And they only get one shot at getting a performer who's going to do a good job for them. So it's natural enough that when they're looking for an entertainer, they're hoping to find somebody who is an expert in the particular type of entertainment that they need. And that's why I've always felt that it's a good idea if you do lots of different types of shows to sort of partition off the various shows that you do. And rather than mentioning them all in one big, say, web page where you say, I'm a children's entertainer, I'm a mentalist, I do a stand-up show, I can do illusions, workshops, I entertain this, that and the other, strolling magic and so on. Rather than, even if you do all of that lot, and you you may well do them very, very well, um, to put them all in one big long page is perhaps a mistake because somebody coming, let's say, with an important business dinner and they're looking for a magician, if they see that you, yes, you do do that, but you also do face painting, they may get the impression that, well, it's not, I didn't really want to face paint. I didn't want someone who entertains kids. I want somebody more, uh, got a bit more business acumen or who's looks a bit more, has a bit more gravitas or has a bit more sleight of hand skill. I mean, it's an illogical um, assumption for bookers to make that you don't have these things just because you also entertain children and do face painting. But nevertheless, people are looking for um, experts. And that's why it's often a good idea, I think, to to split up, either have separate websites or certainly completely separate tabs and pages for the various areas that, that you uh, that you offer as far as a performer. But when you're doing advertising, when you're advertising outwards, so not what you have on your website, but when you're trying to get people to come to your website, one of the things that, that you can do to make sure that people think or feel that you are an expert worth considering is to make sure that your publicity is also niche and that you don't mention in in whether it be newspaper or magazine advertising or Facebook ads or Google ads that you don't mention too many things and that when the link that they click on if it's an online form of advertising that link takes them not perhaps to your general website but takes them to a, a specific page to deal with the thing that they're looking for. So if it's a, a thing about weddings, an advert about weddings, when they click on the link on the Facebook ad for weddings, it should take them to a dedicated weddings page so that you look like an expert. And I think that's really, really key because you tend to think, I'm sure, that getting value for money, well, if I have, a, let's say, a quarter page in a local um, lifestyle magazine, um, I want. Uh, I don't know who's going to be looking at this, so I'll, I'll put in everything. Well, that may not be the right thing. Better would be to think it round the other way and say, OK, who are the likely readers of this magazine? What, what's the demographic? Are, are they young? Are they old? Are they both? Are they family people? What's the content of the magazine? In fact, if you contact um, editors of Magic, Magic, not Magic magazines, of magazines, 
and you ask them, they can sometimes tell you, oh, our demographic is we, we pitch at the 25 to 45 year, year old age group uh, or whatever. So once you know what the, the, the readership is likely to be, then you can start to think to yourself, well, what would these people be interested in? Are they, do they play golf? Are they country club people? Or are they bingo people who go down the Mecca? You know, who are these people? And then once you start to, for each of the advertising places that you're going, once you start to become a bit more thinking more about what the person who's reading your advert is, is going to be like, then you can write the advert that will appeal to them and the link takes them straight to the page that gives them the performer that they were hoping to find. So it, it is a question, I think, sometimes of thinking about what is the person that I want to see my advert, where are they looking? You know, for weddings, Facebook may be a very good page. A lot of brides-to-be use Facebook an awful lot. So if that's the case, let's target my wedding advertising with Facebook ads, for instance, because that makes sense. You've thought about where your target audience is and you've gone and put the right advert with the link to the right page on your website. The whole thing becomes much better and more targeted because that's what people want. They want experts and they want you to be the right person for the job. And if you appear to be an expert and that that's what you major in, in terms of entertainment, then you're more likely, I would suggest, to get an inquiry and then possibly to get the booking. Well, thank you for listening to the April podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, I'm all excited because I'm about at the end of this month, April, I'm about to go off and uh, do half a dozen lectures in the United States and then go to the 4S Close-Up Magic Convention, which I go to most years. Always a highlight of my year to go to that. So by the time I speak to you again, I will hopefully have come back safely from that and I'll maybe have one or two little stories to tell you from my experiences. In the meantime, have a great month and I'll see you in May. Bye for now.